0: Hey guys, welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're new here, welcome. I'm so glad that you found me. And if you've been here before, I appreciate you returning and I really love you guys. Thanks so much for being there. Okay, so I'm going to level with you guys. Today is honestly a 100% selfish episode. Usually I try to cover Mafia figures that you guys ask for or who I think you'll be interested in, but this one today is strictly because I'm so freaking curious about this guy. I really want to do research on him, and I figured what better way to do that than to do an episode on him. I've heard this man's name mentioned so many times. I've heard him referred to as a serial killer, as a crazy person, as like this horrible person but i've never really looked into him and seen what he actually did and i'm really curious about it today we're going to be talking about roy DeMeo, the mafioso who probably has the highest body count in modern mafia history according to all the snitches that have come out with youtube videos and done interviews and stuff so let's go learn about him together huh now i do want to mention here sometimes i get things wrong i'm reporting to you guys what i'm able to research i use as many sources as i can possibly use but sometimes there's going to be situations where all the research out there is wrong so i report the wrong information to you i apologize for that and i definitely welcome you to get involved in the comments and tell me information that you know that's more accurate than what i may have read i haven't really had anybody be rude or anything. Honestly, other than comments from old women telling me that, you know, I'm a slut and I should be ashamed of myself for the way that I dress. I haven't had really any bad experiences whatsoever with any of you guys commenting on my videos. So I really appreciate that and I definitely encourage you to keep going and keep commenting on my page. And again, I I apologize. I'm sorry if I give you the wrong information because five different sources had this wrong information, so I apologize if that does happen, but I'd love to have a conversation with you about what the truth really is. Thanks so much for interacting. I love you guys. Roy Albert DeMeo was born on September seventh, 1942, in Flatlands, Brooklyn. It makes absolutely no sense to me why this happens sometimes, but I've seen 1940 as many times as I've seen 1942, but I believe the sources that say 42, so I'm gonna go with that. It's just weird. Like who reports on something that they don't see and then all the other ones follow in their footsteps? It's weird. His family are Italian immigrants from the Neapolitan area. As always, the part of Italy that his family is born is important. He had three older siblings and one younger sibling. Anthony DiMeo, his father, was a laundry company delivery man. He grew up middle class. The family wasn't well off, but they did survive. They ate, they never lost their house or anything, they always had electricity, they always had cable. So they were middle class, they weren't poor by any means, but they weren't rich. They just so happened to live next door to another very prominent member of the Mafia, Joe Perpacci. Roy grew up really good friends with Perf- Profaci's sons and he would go hang out at their house, he would hang out like on the front porch, they just, they, they were friends. Even though Roy's father adamantly forbid him from being friends with these kids. His father was well aware of who Profaci was and what his reputation and line of work was. Roy's uncle, his father's brother Albert, was a top prosecutor for the Brooklyn D.A. So he knew, you know, he'd give him the the lowdown and he knew what was going on. So he wanted his family to have nothing to do with that family. As much as he tried to keep the family away, though, his mom became friends with Perfacci's wife as well. And they did very much so intertwine with the Perfacci family. While the family had money to pay the bills and, you know, keep the lights on and everything, there wasn't really much to spare. Kids that grew up in those situations kinda tend to go looking for ways to make their own money, especially during those years where they're trying to learn about themselves. They're forming their characters. I had a lemonade stand. They go around and rake leaves. They'll mow lawns. They just do things to make a little money here and there. Roy's mom always told him he would be a doctor one day. He was really smart, like maybe too smart for his own good, and she just wanted that so bad for him. Honestly, it seems like he could have become a doctor if he had put his mind to that. I'm sure at the time, though, you have Profaci next door and you're seeing the mafia from the outside. It seems a lot more alluring. It seems like a much higher payoff with a much lower amount of work that you have to put in to get there. He started out as a young kid learning to loan shark for other people until he started giving out loans himself. A huge reason for his success in loan sharking was. This boy had no fear whatsoever. He had no fear of beating somebody's head in to get the money that was owed to him, so people learned really quick that if they borrowed money from him, they better pay it back. He actually graduated high school, which is pretty huge considering that I think he's the second mobster that I've covered that bothered to graduate. A lot of kids get a taste for the mafia and they end up dropping out of school. They figured that's what they're gonna do with the rest of their life. Obviously, the mafia doesn't require an education, and they look at it as a waste of time. They just don't really care too much about education. It's not frowned upon, it's not looked down upon, but it's not something that's, you know, drilled in you your whole entire life. He was really smart, though, and he received a lot of awards throughout school. He graduated James Madison High School in 1959 and immediately moved over to full-time loan sharking as soon as he graduated high school. Interestingly enough, while he was loan sharking, he was also apprenticing to become a butcher at a local supermarket, which is just so random. I guess cutting up meat is the same whether it's an animal or a human. I don't know. I don't know. To each his own, I guess, but I don't see it. I'm bad with meat I know this sounds like very toddler like but if I'm eating meat it needs to be cut up for me or I can't eat it because if it looks like the animal that I'm eating I legit cannot get it down I can't even when it's cut up I have to force myself to eat meat because I picture the animal that they killed to get the meat but I hate vegetables like every single one I mean peas are okay carrots are pretty cool I like fruit But that a whole nutrition plan does not make, so I do my best to just not think about it. On the rare occasion I eat meat, I'd definitely never be able to be a butcher, that's for sure. (laughs) He apprenticed for seven years at Banner Grocery, a local grocery store where he would stock shelves, deliver groceries, and he would learn how to cut and package the meat. Roy lost a lot of people to him that were really, really close, and he was really, really young. Honestly, my dad tells me all the time that he's never met anybody that has lost as many people as I have. Me and my cousin are straight up morbid about it. It's weird. It doesn't even phase us anymore when someone dies. Unless it's someone really, really close. Like, you know, the the core five human beings in this world that you cannot operate without. Other than that, I mean, once you lose a certain number of people that were in that core group of five, people that were your entire life... You know, um, you couldn't imagine living without them and then they die, death becomes a lot less important to you. So I I understand where he's coming from. I mean, I get the the mental kind of gymnastics going on there. His brother Anthony died when he was 20 years old at war in Korea as a corporal in the Marines when Roy was only 11 years old. Anthony was Roy's hero. Roy got bullied a lot because he was overweight, but people would leave him alone when Anthony was around. Eventually, they left him alone even when Anthony wasn't around because Anthony would sometimes go take revenge on the kids that bullied Roy when he wasn't around. He would just straight up like go and knock on the door and kick the shit out of someone because they had bullied Roy that day. Roy had actually planned to follow in Anthony's footsteps and join the Marine Corps as well, But, I mean, when you lose someone, Anthony died really quickly after he got to Korea, too. He was only there for, like, I think less than a month before he died. So as soon as that happened, Roy was like, yeah, no, that's, I'm not interested anymore. (laughs) Which is understandable. The family changed completely after Anthony died. Roy got a lot more aggressive. He would bully kids at school. He would fight with his father that... The fights would get so bad sometimes that they would become physical, and he wasn't ever the innocent kid that got bullied and picked on before Anthony died again. He was a completely different person, and you could just always tell that something pretty traumatic had happened to him. His dad died during a ride on the subway of a heart attack when Roy was 19 years old. And then, right after his father died, his mother took his younger siblings and moved to Naples to be closer to his relatives. Roy and his father didn't really get along. They fought pretty regularly. Things got physical, but at the end of the day, that's still your dad. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. That's still your father. If you think about it, that's gotta be wild. 19 years old and completely on your own. Your entire family is gone. You are... Literally the only person of your blood in the country. Personally, I can't take being in a different place than my dad. He's literally the only family that I have left other than my cousin. And the two of them are two of the three most important human beings in the world to me. I can't imagine being 19 years old and being alone in the world. Like, that's gotta be crazy. I really give him a lot of credit for making it through that time because I know personally, I lived with my parents till I was really old. I was, I think, 24. Five when I moved out of my parents' house. I was definitely a uh, a late bloomer. And I had plans to live with my parents for the rest of my life. I only moved out because I started working in the city and they were too far away. So at that age, it's really important. It's important to have your family with you. So I don't know. I would have given in and just gone to Sicily if I were him. So, you know. Yeah, he's stuck in there. Between working at the grocery store and loan sharking, it wasn't long before Roy was able to get himself one of those Cadillacs that he used to see gangsters roll up to Perfacci's house and regularly. That was one of the number one things that made him want to be a gangster and be in the mafia was that when he was a kid he would watch these Cadillacs come up the driveway at Perfacci's house and he was like, you know, I'm gonna do that one day. And he did. He did. He got it done pretty quickly. It seems like Roy was just really eager to get his life started as quickly as he could. He left his parents' house at a super young age, he started his career young, and he married young too. He married Gladys Rosamond Britton in 1960, which put him at 18 years old. They quickly started having kids, and Roy was a father by the time he hit 20. So that's all really young, you know, 20 years old, you have no family left, you have a wife and kids, and I don't have kids now, so... (laughs) One important thing to know about DeMeo is that the reputation that he had built up over the years as a serial killer and, you know, the baddest of the bad, it wasn't only his reputation. A lot of it came from the men that were around him as well. He did a really, really good job of building up an army around him of people that were more than happy to kill for him. He chose people that he identified with. He could see himself in these guys. They were all very similar. He did them favors, he gave them money, he helped them step into a better role in life, and he got them very young. A lot of the guys in the crew had been there since they were 16, 17 years old, and they did that because when you're 16 in New York and you commit a crime, it's pretty rare that you get arrested, you know, unless you do something really serious. Usually, they just arrest you and bring you home to your parents and they know you're gonna get your ass beat that night, but uh, they don't put you in jail. So it's a lot easier to deal with having younger kids because there's a lot less on the line for them. Another thing that made the people in his crew fiercely loyal to him was that he had no problem doing the dirty work himself. He was always teaching them how to do things. He would have barbecues at his house where he would show the guys in his little crew how to shoot guns he'd be taking apart a body and like telling them why he's doing this and why he's doing that just so that they could do it next time. So it was always like, he took on like a fatherly role and it was always a teachable moment with Roy. And that made people not only look at him as like an expert in a lot of things, but it made them loyal to him because they felt like he's teaching me that's attention. And that's, you know, that's, Positive attention. Even though, you know, he's taking apart a body while he's doing it, he's showing me that he's interested in me getting better and growing as a person by teaching me how to do something. He was also really eager to learn about new money making schemes all the time. There were a lot of times where he wouldn't be needed on a crime. It was a lot easier if he wasn't there, honestly, but he would go because he wanted to learn the ropes of these schemes and learn how to do them himself. He would learn how to do it and then he would go back and teach his crew how to do it and then they would be able to make money that way. Their crew mainly made money off of stealing and selling stolen cars. Back in the day, DeMeo was known as an associate of the Lucchese family. Roy was happy to be an associate, but he didn't really see it going very far. The Lucchese family on Long Island, they mainly ran tow truck companies, junkyards, a car theft operation in Brooklyn. He saw his future in that family as just like hanging around at a junkyard, just kind of like being useless for the rest of his life. He didn't really want that. When his reputation pursued him though, he was invited to meet Anthony Gaggi, also known as Nino to discuss the possible transition into the Gambino family so that he can make more money. Now as somebody that grew up in New York, I can 100% tell you that the Gambinos are the top of the top in New York. Anybody who knows anything about the Mafia knows that the Gambinos, they're the most powerful family there is. They have the most people, they have the most power, they have the most influence and they have the richest history. Trying to choose between the Gambino family and the Lucchese family is like trying to choose whether to work at Kansas City Federal Credit Union or Chase Bank. Like, it's very, very different classes. The Gambinos are the creme de la creme. Of course, DiMeo hopped on the offer with the quickness. His feet went on fire running over to that offer. And as soon as he accepted it, he started building his actual crime crew. DiMeo found his first soldier, who, ironically enough, wasn't an Italian. He was Jewish, and he met him earlier that year at a gas station peddling weed. DiMeo took on Harvey Rosenberg, who had been calling himself Chris, to try to distance himself from his Jewish heritage, and brought him under his wing. After a while, Chris started to introduce himself to people as Chris DiMeo. Rosenberg had always really admired the Italians in the area that he grew up in, and he dreamed of being a mafia associate. This was like literally his all-time, if you could be anything in the world, what would you be? I would be in the mafia. He knew it was obviously really unlikely because he's Jewish, he's not Italian. But when DiMeo came along, it was a godsend. DiMeo saw his tenacity in Rosenberg, and he shared DeMeo's lack of a guilty conscience. He was just as ruthless, just as savage... They just didn't care. He also recognized Rosenberg's underdog spirit. He related a lot to this Jewish kid that grew up amongst Italians and wanted nothing more than to be an Italian mafia member. He related to that a lot as like the, the fat kid that grew up getting picked on as a kid and losing his brother. you know he just he understood that that sense of not belonging. At the time, Rosenberg was selling small amounts of weed at the corner gas station, like the lowest of the lowest rung of criminal that there is. He wasn't making any substantial money, but he was getting by. There was one thing that he was really good at though. He was really good at car theft. This man was a genius when it came to stealing cars. Rosenberg taught DeMeo everything he knew about quickly getting a car started and getting it out of the owner's driveway, how to change a VIN number to make it look like the car was legitimately titled, and how to sell it in other states. So pretty much how to steal and sell and make money off of cars. DeMeo gave Rosenberg a loan so that he could start dealing in larger quantities of pop. Instead of selling ounces on the corner, he could sell pounds and he could do it like from his home or from his business. He would have soldiers run the drug so that he didn't have to be on the corner himself. So now not only is DeMeo this mafia guy that's so cool and tantalizing, but on top of that, he just gave him money and pretty much jump-started his criminal career. So Rosenberg is head over heels in love with DiMeo. He has a whole bunch of friends from the block, and he brought them all to meet DiMeo, and all of them started working for him. Other than DiMeo's cousin Joseph, Dracula Guglielmo, the rest of the crew came from Rosenberg. It quickly grew, like quick-click, to include Joseph and Patrick Testa, I can't find any information that links these two, who came to be known as the Gemini twins, to Salvatore and Philip Testa from the Philadelphia crew, but in my romantic brain they're related. If anybody has any info on the actual relationship there, let me know, I'd be super interested to hear. Anthony Center, Richard and Frederick Denomi. Henry Borelli, Vito Arena, and Carlo Profeta came on as additional members of the crew. They weren't all there right from the jump. Like I know that Henry Borelli, he got into it a little later. So there was a few of them um, at the beginning, but they had started building the core of their little group. Every single one of the kids that are around right now are absolutely bloodthirsty killers. The biggest and baddest guys within the Mafia were too scared to touch any of these guys, like their reputation was well known because they were vicious. While they were really good at cutting up bodies and stealing cars, they weren't the brightest group. DiMeo was pretty smart, but everyone else in the group had some issues. Some of them couldn't even read. And this is in, like, modern times. It's not in the, the 20s and 30s where that was regular. He also had a few members that were blabbermouths and had absolutely no fear of the telephone or taps or wires. They just did what they wanted, said what they wanted, and they weren't cautious at all. Tomeo so set up a headquarters called the Gemini Lounge where the crew spent all of their time. Every crew has its own little hangout, and this is theirs. Aside from the DiMaio crew, they came to be known as the Gemini crew, and two of the members, Joseph and Patrick Testa, came to be known as the Gemini twins. Another thing that got the name of the headquarters was the way that they typically killed and disposed of bodies. It came to be known as the Gemini method. There was an apartment in the back of the club that Dracula lived in. He actually had the bar phone calls forwarded to this back apartment, and they used it for most things including killing it was accessible through the side entrance into the club somebody would lure the victim in through the door which wasn't really crazy since it's how people usually entered the club regularly so their heckles wouldn't rise because they were going in that way it wasn't any different than you know if they were just going to hang out that day somebody usually roy would come out and immediately shoot the intended target there was no must no fuss there's no reason to bullshit around they don't sit there and get comfortable and do it when he doesn't expect it it's just as they're walking in boom shoot him he'd use a silencer so nobody around would hear it if neighbors start hearing gunshots every day it's it's not good so he always used the silencer as soon as he shot the person he would have a towel ready and he would wrap it around their head like a turban to stop the blood from getting all over the apartment chris would be there and he was only in his boxer shorts to avoid getting blood on his expensive clothes he would stab the person in the heart multiple times so the wound from the bullet would stop bleeding since the heart would stop circulating blood they didn't want more blood coming out. I don't really understand that part because you would think that they would just start bleeding from their chest, but I've never cut a body up so. <laughs> and they had the towel wrapped around the head already, so I don't I don't know. I know I don't understand it. But there had to be some wisdom to it because these guys did it so freaking often that there's no way that they didn't know the best way to do it and exactly how to do it the perfect way. Next, they would undress and drag the body into the bathroom and put it in the bathtub. It would finish congealing there and the rest of the blood would go down the drain. They'd leave the body alone for a little while, usually about a half hour in the bathroom just to kind of, you know, let the rest of the blood get out and kind of make the rest of the the process a little less bloody you don't have squirting blood stuff like that sometimes they would order a pizza or go out to eat while they waited other times they just hang around and talk like there wasn't a freaking body sitting in the bathroom once a little time went by and the blood had a chance to congeal or drain out they would transfer the body onto a plastic tarp You know, like, the kind that you cover pools or cars with? That's what they would have. With the body on the tarp, they would move it back out to the main room so they could have a little more room to work. You know, you gotta be comfortable when doing sick shit. And that's where they would take the body apart. The head and the extremities would be taken off and put into bags. The bags would be put into cardboard boxes and transported to the Fountain Avenue dump in Brooklyn, which they got, like, I think they said, like, seven or 70 something tons of trash was dumped there on a daily basis. So it was virtually impossible that anybody would ever find any of these body parts in the dump because there was just so much of it. At one point, the cops considered opening an investigation into that location after multiple federal witnesses confessed to having killed multiple people and dumping the body parts there. Before the plan was ever initiated or executed, they said that more than likely the project would cost too much money, it would take too much time, and it would produce too little usable evidence to justify conducting it in the first place. Pretty much, we're not wasting our time sifting through garbage for weeks or months to find a bunch of dead gangsters. Nope. Not worth my time. Which I get. You know? I can't I can't really argue that. I don't blame them too much. One of the murders especially bothers me, so I'm not going in chronological order here, but this one bothers me a lot, so I want to talk about it first. You know when something bad happens and the date is like on your birthday or something and you get upset about it because you're like, no. That's my birthday! Things aren't supposed to happen on my birthday! Bad things like that? No! It's my birthday! That's a special day! I feel like you feel that way because you feel a sense of connection to the crime. You know, if you just read about a crime in the newspaper, It's not really gonna hit you, you know? But when you have tiny, tiny little details like that, it makes it a little more like, no, that's not cool, man. No. The point is, I don't like seeing myself as like being the victim of a crime. Like someone that I really relate to, I don't like it. I don't like seeing like, oh my God, that could have been me. Like I'm just like that. When I connect with the victim and like feel similar to them, it bothers me a lot. In 1977, there was this guy named Jonathan Quinn. He was a car thief that worked with the crew. He was from Farmingdale, a town on Long Island that has one of Long Island's two main railroad stops, Farmingdale and Jamaica, Queens. I guess Ronkonkoma could be considered a main one too, since you have to switch there to go anywhere east of the middle of the island, but Farmingdale and Jamaica, Queens, those are the two big ones. Cherie Golden was a 19-year-old teen beauty pageant winner. She grew up in the same area, the flatlands of Brooklyn, as DeMeo. She started dating Jonathan, who was 35 years old, pretty recently. She was head over heels, full-blown in love with this boy by the time she discovered that he had a wife and six kids at home. They go to fancy restaurants in Little Italy so that John could show Cherie off to all his mafia friends. She had won a Twiggy lookalike contest. Twiggy is a model, actress, and singer from the UK. She was She's gorgeous. She's really pretty. And John was about 10 leagues below her. He did have one thing going for him, though he was in the mafia young girls from new york they they love a bad boy and it's stupid i'm sure it's obviously not just from new york but i'm i i'm i'm a girl from new york so i could tell you about girls from new york and they all i've never met a girl that just doesn't head over heels flip for bad boys when they're kids I don't know why. It's just like written into their DNA. That's why this one in particular bothers me so much because I can 100% see myself being this dumbass 19 year old kid. I could definitely see it. I would definitely do something this stupid when I was that age. And The only reason that I didn't was because I didn't start to consort with Mafia dudes until I was old enough to know that like you know they're schemers and assholes. Like, they're freaking jokes. But if somebody came around when I was 19 years old and started telling me about how they were in the mafia, I promise you, I would have fallen in love. So 19-year-old Cherie is dating 35-year-old Jonathan. He's bringing her to fancy restaurants, he's showing her off, and she's loving this bad boy angle. So things are going pretty well for a while. Where Jonathan fucked up is when he started getting her involved in his hustle. He started bringing her on his rounds for pickups. He would bring her around to the chop shops that he bought and sold stolen cars from. And he even got her involved by giving her a machine that she could put in her bedroom so that when she wasn't with him, she could make phony titles for the stolen cars for him. When Roy and Nino found out about this, they immediately were like, absolutely not, no, dump her leave her right now you cannot be with a girl that that girl's not in the mafia you can't be it's too risky to have an outsider especially a 19 year old girl know so much about your operations your criminal activity and your relationship with the mafia get rid of her jonathan absolutely 100 percent refused were they kidding this girl was like smoking hot okay He's got so much respect when he shows up with this young, attractive girl on his arm and he really likes her. He wasn't leaving her and nobody had any right to tell him that he had to. It didn't take long, though. Exactly what the higher-ups feared would happen, happened soon. Jonathan was arrested and was looking at some serious time. He had been under investigation for his involvement in 52.5 million security thefts. He was brought before a Nassau County grand jury, and he was out the next day. He had decided to cooperate with authorities to try to reduce his sentence. Tomeo got word that he had cooperated within two days, but he would have known either way. The rule of thumb is if you were arrested and you're not sitting in jail, you snitched. The crew reached out to his cousin, Joseph Bennett it was Quinn's cousin and a car thief that was associated with the crew himself. They offered him $20,000 to get Quinn to meet up with him and bring Cherie along for the ride. They promised to take care of everything. They just needed help getting the two there. They, you know, don't worry. You won't have to help with the dirty work. You won't have to do anything. I just need them here so we can get a hold of him. it kind of took his time deciding whether he wanted to help. He felt like he was getting set up, so he was like, eh. I don't really want to. I'll, I'll, I'll think about it. I'll think about it. The crew urged him, saying that it was a really easy 20 grand and that they would do it on their own if they had to, but it would just be easier this way. Eventually, they got tired of his waiting game and they moved forward without his help. On July 22nd, 1977, Quinn came to the Gemini Lounge and walked inside. I don't really know why he walked inside, he just came, I guess I guess he didn't think that they knew that he had turned witness. When he walked into the lounge, two mobsters walked outside and started flirting with Cherie. One went on the driver's side and one went on the passenger's side. As soon as Quinn walked in, he was shot. The crew didn't use the Gemini method, which I'll explain in a minute, but they wanted Quinn and Cherie's bodies found. They wanted it to send a message about what happens when you cooperate with authorities against this crew when quinn was shot Cherie didn't hear it because they used the silencer on the gun so even being sitting right outside of the club she had no idea the guy on the passenger side said something to get her attention he probably like said something funny and she like turned her head to look at him when she turned toward him the guy on the driver's side shot her in the back of the head When her head whipped around, like, she's looking this way, when her head whipped around to see what happened, the passenger dude shot her in the back of the head that way. And she was also shot in the face, so all in all, there was three bullet holes. Again, I don't know why it hits so hard when you can relate to a victim more, but this killing really just bothered me a lot. She was, like, kind of preppy. They described her clothing when she went out as like having a pair of shorts and like a wife beater and a pair of flip-flops on. She was just like a typical young girl from New York and I don't know, I could just see myself in her and it bothers me a lot that she died this way. I really didn't know the extent of wives and girlfriends being hurt and killed in the mafia because of their mafia husband or boyfriend, but researching it definitely led to some revelations for me and that's some scary shit. Like. I didn't know. I thought it was very, very strict on, you know, you don't touch the family, you only go after the person that's in the mafia, but they do. They go after the women. A lot of times it's used as like an incentive to pay back your loan sharking debt or get them to not rat or whatever, but it's... It happens, and it's it's sad because that girl had nothing to do with it. You know, she wasn't out there committing crimes. She did know. At the end of the day, there's been zero women in history that actually didn't know that their husband was in the mafia. Like they knew. And I say all the time that guys, when they decide to do this, they kind of take on that risk. You know, like if they die, it sucks, but it it's you took that risk on and that's what happens and I guess you could say the same thing about the wives but I don't know I don't know I just don't feel great about it I don't like it Quinn's body was found dumped in a heavily wooded area in Staten Island near a landfill in fresh kills he was dressed in pajamas and his hands and feet were tied behind his back he was found about two and a half hours after his wife said that he left to go pick up Cherie before her body was discovered Cherie's parents went on the news to say that their daughter was missing and they wanted her back. They offered $25,000 for any information leading to her discovery and they just really they were flipping out. Like it's it's sad. They that's their kid, you know. Her body was found 3 days later after it had sat in a stolen car for 3 days in New York's July heat. Her body was jammed under the dashboard of a stolen Lincoln Continental near Coney Island. It was abandoned near the juncture of Lewis Avenue and Frank Court in Garrison Beach, Brooklyn. The crew had pulled down her shirt to encourage the police to believe that it was sexually motivated. If it was sexually motivated, maybe the cops won't look at the mafia for it. They did determine that she wasn't sexually assaulted, though, so thank God for that. DeMeo also started moving his loan sharking over to pretty much what we would call now is like a of ants. It's pretty sick, because that's, that's my industry right there. I was there at the start of the legal cash advance industry. It was a cool industry to start in, because it let me climb the ladder pretty quick, and I hit a very high level at a very young age, because I was in the industry so early in the creation of the industry itself. So normally, if you're an underwriter at like a big bank, you... Would usually make senior underwriter when you're like, I don't know, 40. And then you go, you know, above that to like manager of underwriting, you hit like 45, 50. You know, like you you have to be a lot older to put a lot more time in to do it. I was 25 years old as the director of underwriting. He starts lending money out at exorbitant interest rates. To legitimate businesses for a weekly VIG or interest rate, which is exactly what cash advance is. You know, nowadays most payments are weekly. But let me tell you, when I started off in that industry, interest rates were super low. But by the time I got into riskier lending, a one four nine with a four-month term was regular terms. Like, say I lend you a thousand dollars, you would pay me back $1,499 and you would do it in four months. We would pull something stupid like, you know, 1874 a day out of your account. And by the end of the four months, you would have paid back $1,499 and you would have been given $1,000. That's an insane rate. Obviously, this is super oversimplifying it, but it's a completely legal industry to this very day. I was just working in that industry not too long ago, so um, it's legal kind of crazy but it is legal the industry was actually created because a shit ton of stockbrokers and guys in the stock market were charged with all this crazy shit and they were forever barred from ever trading again so they got into cash advance because it's unsecured lending and so the government can't technically control it it's not you know you don't need a license to do it where you need a stockbroker license to trade stocks You don't need anything like I don't have any licensing and I was the director of underwriting so I want to I want to say it's the FSRA financial services regulating agency I don't really know what the legal overseer of the finance industry is which is super crazy for me to be able to tell you in one breath that I regularly put out millions of dollars a month on the street and in the next breath that I have no idea what the legal overview is the industry is legal, though, because when someone goes bad on a cash advance, they get sued. When one of Dimeo's customers go bad, he goes and breaks their net. Very different. <laughs> his book included a dentist's office, an abortion clinic, a bunch of restaurants, flea markets. So he started expanding who he was giving loans to. I would love to know what his interest rates look like. I know there was the Westchester Premier theater in Tarrytown that he had invested a decent amount of money into at some point, and they did have to end up killing the owner because of that debt. For the most part, he did stick to car dealerships for loans, but he did start going outside of that and doing loan sharking with legitimate businesses. Roy had invested in the theater, but Nino was the one who really got killed on that investment. He had invested over $200,000. Before eventually forcing the company to go into bankruptcy which led the IRS to come after them for fraud charges because you can't do that you know you can't you can't just claim bankruptcy because you're spending all your money on a big it's it's illegal so I'm gonna be honest with you here I cannot I can't I can't read every book that's been written about every guy that I research I can't I literally do a new mafia member every week I can't read that many books I try. I really do. I really do try. I swear. I'm about seven or eight hours into Murder Machine, but it's a 12 hour book, okay? And I just don't have it in me to do that. There's people who can like speed read. I'm not one of those people. It takes me a while to finish a book. So I haven't finished that book. So I'm not 100% sure what happens in the whole thing. It is an epic book, though. I do recommend it. If you're interested, go read Murder Machine. Like, definitely, definitely top-level Mafia book. But it's a 12-hour book, and, like, sometimes I will say something, and people will come, and they'll, like, come with quotes from the book in the comments, and I'm like, bro, I can't. <laughs> you realize that there's a book on every guy that I've covered so far, Right and I try to put out a video every single Tuesday. Like, that's why this one had two weeks in between, because it took me a long time to read that book and do all this research. Plus, I'm moving, so that had a huge part in it. But So anyway, in the part of the book that I did read... Um, I know they covered that the Westchester Premier Theater had a loan out with the group, and Diana Ross was performing for like $25,000 a night, and he didn't ever end up making money on it. They did eventually have to kill the owner, I think. I think they said that the parking lot was underwater all the time. It was just like, it was a money pit, so um, it didn't always work out. You could definitely lose money on it. The first person from within the group to fall was the person DeMeo was closest to. Chris DeMeo, or Chris Rosalia, as he went in the streets. If he wasn't going by DeMeo, he would go by Rosalia because it's his wife's maiden name. And he took it on to, you know, get a more Italian name. Or Harvey Rosenberg, which is his actual name. Um, he was the first to go. During his time at the Gemini crew, Chris had taken the increased earnings that he got from the increased drugs he was dealing after he got the loan from DiMeo. So he took that increased earning and he opened a chop shop in Brooklyn. It was a weird name though. He named it Carphobia Repairs. Freaking weird one there. I, I don't know. Chris had been operating under the assumption, false though it may be, that it was possible that he could become a made member of the Gambino family. Other people in the crew told him often that it was crazy. He was insane if he thought that that was going to happen. They would remind him that they didn't even make Meyer Lansky, who was one of the architects of the Mafia. And he was also one of the big seven, the creators of the National Syndicate, and he didn't get made. He would just say that Meyer hadn't done as much work as he had done. By the end of his life, Chris was suspected of being involved in upwards of 200 murders. To his credit though, he was running a very successful empire. The chop shop was doing really well. They would steal cars and then sell them to sellers in other states, so it was a lot easier to get the cars out of the locations that they had been stolen from. And because of how quick he was, they were able to grab over 10 cars a night some nights. He would usually be able to sell each car for about $5,000 each. So just from car theft, this boy is raking in around $50,000 a night. His drug empire was booming too. His marijuana sales continued to grow, and he got really good connections with someone that was selling quaaludes and cocaine. Quaaludes were like the Xanax of the earlier generation, and everybody was hooked on them. Like, everybody did Quaaludes. Everyone. He was able to get them at wholesale prices, and he put them on the street really easily because he didn't pay much, so he could compete with the other people that were selling them because they had to sell for a higher price because it was a higher cost to them. He wasn't afraid to flash around his newfound income, either. His house, his cars, it was all exuding exorbitant wealth. He just made sure he had really nice things. When he would participate in the murders, he was also well known for getting completely undressed before he would start dismembering the body in his underwear so that it didn't get any blood on his expensive clothes. In 1974, Chris woke up in the morning, he went to his garage, he went to open the door to smoke his cigarette in the morning, and he was shot three times. He was shot in the jaw, the arm, and the chest. This shooting is what led to the group's first of many wars and murders. Andre Katz, around Chris's age at 22 years old, owned and operated another body shop in the area that they were in, which was the Flatlands in Brooklyn. His shop was called Very Best Foreign Car Services. Katz and Chris formed a relationship when they met through Chris's drug connection, who Chris's drug connection was actually a pharmacist that was selling him cocaine and quaaludes. Don't forget that, like, back then, cocaine was legal for medicinal purposes, which is how a pharmacist got his hands on cocaine in the first place, and he introduced the two of them. Chris offered to sell stolen car parts to cats. They started to work together and cats started buying drugs from Chris as well. Andre had committed the cardinal rule sin. He just didn't listen to the cardinal rule. You don't shit where you eat. He sold his friend a van. A stolen van. The cops arrested his friend and when they leaned on him, the friend was a little puss and he immediately folded and told the cops that he had bought the car from Andre. Ajay was arrested and the cops started leaning on him to rat out where he got the car. He didn't fold, but he was pissed as hell, because the only reason that the friend had been caught, which led to him being caught, was that Chris apparently didn't do a great job of replacing the VIN number plate on the car before he sold it, so it was just like a choppy put together and it was really easy for the cop to figure out that the car was stolen. So since Andre had been arrested, the Gemini crew got a little sketchy. Obviously since they're dealing with stolen car parts and drugs to him, Andre has some serious information that he could use to get out of any charges that are pending against him. The Gemini crew went to confront Andre. They kind of just intended to scare him by threatening him about what would happen if he opened his mouth to the cops. Chris walked up to Andre's shop with the Gemini twins and things started getting wild. It was like a whole dramatic scene on the streets of Brooklyn. They're yelling at each other, they're up in each other's faces, they're both Italian wannabes so, you know, they're flaring their arms around. It's like a whole thing. Nothing ends up happening and the crew left, but the next day, when they got into another argument, Chris got fed up and he laid hands on Andre. Chris punched Andre in the mouth. Now obviously, Andre is pissed as hell. This man just did a shitty job with a car, he got him arrested, he got his friend arrested, and now he has charges pending on him. And now he has the nerve to lay hands on him? He's pissed, but he's not stupid. (laughs) The crew had started to build a reputation for the brutal way that they did business. They were regularly breaking people's skulls in collecting loan sharking debts, so he didn't want that smoke. So as mad as Andre is, he just keeps on keeping on. He's like, yo, fuck this dude. I'll never do business with him again. I hate him, but I ain't trying to get whacked today. So I'm just gonna, you know, go to my little corner, I'm gonna stew over here by myself, and I'm gonna ignore him. This isn't enough for Chris, though. Chris is out of his mind on Coke. He's been going crazy on it since he decided to start selling it. Everybody could start to see that he was losing weight. He was getting really hooked on Coke but a lot of people just kind of attributed it to like the hard partying lifestyle that he had been leading so he was able to just keep on going but anybody that knows anybody that does too much coke they know that they get crazy if you are on too much coke for too long of a time you get paranoid and twitchy and as soon as you get within like 10 feet of them you can like literally feel that crackhead energy just exuding off of them. I don't know about you, but I feel that and I'm just like, oh no, 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 no. It makes me nervous. Like, it puts me into anxiety and panic just being around someone that has that kind of energy. Andre is stopped at a red light when a car rolls up on him. Two dudes in masks jump out and yank his ass out of the car and they beat the brakes off of this boy. I'm talking he can't speak for 3 days after the attack because his face is too swollen from the beating Not your average run-of-the-mill beating. This is one of those he drank through a straw for the next few weeks type situations, like it was bad. So, now obviously Andre gets the hint. He knows exactly who it was. After the attack, he told his brother Victor that it was Joseph Testa and Anthony Center that had attacked him. He's not an idiot though, he he gets that these guys are worried that he's going to talk to cops. This attack was a walk in the park if they get even a whiff that he might speak to police. They're just letting him know not to make that decision. If he does make that decision, he's dead. Within 10 seconds, he's done. At this point, he is paranoid as hell. He doesn't want to get clipped for the crew, especially when he hadn't even done anything. He didn't speak to police. He was up against some serious jail time because he was keeping his mouth shut and this is the treatment that he's getting. He knew better than to leave the house after that. This time it was just a short hospital stay, but next time he knew he wasn't walking away from it. He knew all too well what was going to happen. After a little bit of time, Andre's now just sitting at home and recovering and he's just getting more and more angry. He didn't talk. He didn't do anything wrong, yet he had been hit by Chris, put in the hospital by two of his cronies. And he's facing jail time for this little schmuck. And what now? Was he just going to hide out for the rest of his life? Andre decided to take matters into his own hands. He went on the offensive. As Chris opened his garage door one morning to smoke a cigarette, Andre drove by with an automatic weapon and lit this house up. He got him three times, that's where he got shot, jaw, arm, chest. Chris survived, but obviously he's all messy now. I feel like anybody that gets shot in the jaw it is gonna be messed up. Anywhere, anywhere in the face, you're gonna you're gonna be messed up. You're gonna be able to see it. Now, obviously, Chris is in the hospital healing. He's recuperating from all the bullet holes in him, and within a day or two of him falling. Cops go pick up Joseph Tessa and Anthony Center. He didn't tell the cops that it was them. They just went and they picked him up because they had loaded handguns on them. But let's be real, we know that the cops saw that he was shot and said, oh, it was probably these two and went and picked them up. But it wasn't him that said anything. Now this right here is where Henry Borelli starts sliding up in the Gemini's DM. Because when Tessa and Center were arrested, he ran as fast as his little feet could take him down to the precinct to get them out. He was like, I bet this is my inn. This is the way that I get into the crew. I could be a gopher. I'll go get these kids out of jail and there's no way they won't love me. So now Borelli got Testa and Center out of jail. They're pending a loaded weapons charge in New York. Chris is in the hospital recuperating with holes all over his body, and Andre is operating on super high alert. He doesn't leave the house to go anywhere without his brother, Victor. Now, the crew is doing everything they can to get a hold of Andre. They want him dead, and he knows it, so he's not letting them get a hold of him. Borelli gets an idea to get a girl that he knows to lure Andre out so that they can get a hold of him without also having to take out Victor, which they really don't want to do. Victor's not involved. He's just... There because it's his brother. Barelli goes to this girl, Babette, or Judy, as she's known in the book. Maybe it's the J in her middle name because it's Babette J. Castle, but her first name is Babette. So he goes to Babette and he's like, hey, Babette, I need a favor. You are absolutely smoking hot and I really need you to help me out because I need to get a hold of this slime bowl dude. I just want to talk to him. I'm not going to hurt him. I just want to talk but like, I really need your help. So she's all like, oh my God, oh my God, you're in the mafia and you're talking to me. That is so cool that you're in the mafia. Of course I will help you. I will do whatever you need. But you're just gonna talk to him, right? You're not gonna kill him. Like, I totally couldn't deal with it if you were gonna kill him. So just pinky promise, double pinky promise, you're not gonna kill him. You're just, you're just going to talk to him. You're not gonna hurt him. And Borelli is over here like, Hey, babe, I got you. I would never kill someone. I pinky promise. I triple pinky promise. We just want to talk to him. So she agrees and she's like, All right, I'll do it. You know, I'm phoning. You're in the mafia. I will do whatever you want. That is so cool. But then she goes home that night and she does some thinking about it when she's not under the influence of such a mysterious dark bad boy. And she starts thinking about if she can really trust Henry. She doesn't know if he really won't kill him, and it sounds like he probably will kill him. She doesn't want to go to jail for the rest of her life. So she calls him back, and she's like, Listen, I told you that I would help you with this. I know I told you. I'm so sorry that I told you I could, but I'm really not comfortable with it, and I decided to not do it. I'm so sorry, baby. Like, I know you're in the mafia, and that's so cool. So, like, I really hope that we could still be friends. So now once Henry gets that call, the crew's like, you know what? That's probably for the best. Let's just put this beef on the back burner. We already got arrested for the weapons. We have a crew member that's shot up in the hospital. It's better that we just let him be. We'll leave him where he is. We'll put that beef on the back burner and we'll pick it up later if we need to. But that's good. We're glad that she didn't agree to do that. So now, while they have that whole situation sitting on ice, Roy gets a visit from a cop on his payroll that works in auto crimes. The dude that works for Roy was sitting at the station one day when Andre came in and voluntarily told them that Chris and Henry were involved heavily in an auto theft ring. He's pretty much trying to get Chris off the streets so that he can feel safe going out again. And I'm sure it was to try to get his own sentence lifted, but he's tired of not being able to leave his house without being scared of getting killed. I don't know why he made this mistake. He worked with the crew a lot. He knew that they had contacts inside the police station. So now, as soon as Andre leaves the station, this cop that's working with Roy goes running to DeMeo. DeMeo turns around to Borelli and he's like, all right, listen, fuck this bitch. Don't ask her this time. Tell her she is doing this. We need this man dead. He's now ratting. This is no longer a laughing matter. I don't give a shit. Tell the girl she's doing it. Andre goes and appears before a grand jury and testifies against Chris in May telling everyone that he's stealing a shit ton of cars on the streets in Brooklyn every single night. So, Borelli goes back to Babette and he tells her, like, listen, I really like you, but I can't be nice anymore, like, we're not asking you anymore, we're telling you, go get this dude from his shop. So now she's like, yeah, I'm not trying to go to jail for the rest of my life, but I'm also not trying to get killed by this mafia group. So yeah, I mean, I guess I'll help, I don't want to, but yeah. Okay. So she goes to a shop where his wife is working and her and Andre are hanging out at the front of the shop, just, you know, sitting there waiting for customers. Now Babette goes there under the guise that her friend's car was towed there. And the wife is like, uh, no, we don't have that car. And she's like, no, are you sure? Can you check? Like, I know that this is the place. Like they told me it was here. Please check. They definitely said it was here. So Andre's like, yeah, all right, I'll check. Why don't you come back with me and you can come see if you see the car. So she goes in the back with him and he shows her his car, which is like uber gorgeous. He has a Porsche. And he asks her to go out that night. And she's like, all right, game, set, match. Yes, sir. I will go out with you. And she's just pretty much trying to get this over and done with. She doesn't want her part in this to be too big. So she's just like, yeah, cool. Let's go on a date. So that Sunday night, July thirteenth, 1975, Andre goes back to Babette's apartment where she lives on the ninth floor to pick her up for the date. As soon as he rolls up and puts his car in park, Chris, Joseph Tessa, and Henry Borelli roll up on him. They put a gun to his head and kidnap him, obviously. They head to a grocery store where the crew brings him into the meat department. They stabbed him in the heart a bunch of times and then they dismember him using the Gemini method. They put the body parts in plastic bags and they threw them in the dumpster of the grocery store hoping that it would go to the dump site. Where they fucked up is they didn't check what the garbage pickup date was. The garbage didn't get picked up by the dump truck until Tuesday. So the body parts were sitting there for days. It's pretty regular for homeless people to go into dumpsters looking for food in Brooklyn And that's exactly what happened. A bum went into the dumpster, found a leg, and freaked the freak out. He dropped the leg on the ground and ran, and then when a man was walking his dog, he stumbled upon this leg and he called the cops. Since Andre's head had been pushed through a machine that's used to compact cardboard boxes, they couldn't identify him by looking at his face. They had no idea. They said that his head had resembled like a pancake-like shape. They were able to get some teeth that were still whole, so they were able to identify him using dental records. Before the leg was found, Babette had started getting nervous about Andre's feet. She had been watching out the window when Chris pulled up and took... Andre from her parking lot. She called his body shop the next day, and when Andre's wife answered, she asked if Andre was around. His wife is like, wait, aren't you the girl that came in the other day looking for your friend's car? I totally thought he was with you. He told me he was going to be going on a date with you when he left. So now, Babette is losing her shit. Not only has Andre not returned home by the next day, but he told his wife that he was going out on a date with her. Why the hell would he do that? Who tells their wife when they're going on a date with somebody? She totally thought she had insulated herself here. She thought that her involvement was going to be just enough to help out Henry, but not so much to get thrown in jail with him. But obviously that wasn't true. She was really banking on Andre hiding this from his wife. No husband ever tells their wife that they're going out on a date with another woman. She thought he was going to tell his wife he was going to play cards with the boys or something. This curveball that he told her the truth was a bombshell and Babette didn't know how to handle it. She continued calling Andre's shop for the next three days and he never turned up. So now Babette calls Henry and she's like, listen, we need to talk time now. So Henry goes, he meets up with Babette and she goes at him. She's like, I know you killed him. You swore you wouldn't. You swore. How? How could you do this to me? I trusted you and you implicated me on a murder a murder, my dude. How could you do that to me? So Henry fesses up. He's like, listen, I'm going to level with you. Yeah, he's dead. I'm sorry that we lied, but we really needed you to help. And I knew you wouldn't do it if I told you the truth, but that was still shitty of me. My bad. Like I shouldn't have done that. You're a friend of mine. I'm sorry. So she has a moment of realization and she's like, oh shit, like wait, I've been here so worried about going to jail that I haven't even thought that I'm probably in danger too. She turns around to Henry and she's like, are you going to kill me because I know everything? So Henry lies to her and tells her that he's the boss of the crew. And he's like, nah, I'm the boss. I'm the one who makes the decisions. I'm the one who makes the orders for people to die. I wouldn't make an order for you to die. And I'm the only one that knows that you know everything. They think that you don't even know he's dead. So I'm the only one. You're straight, sweetie. Don't worry about it. I love you. I respect you. I will not let anything happen to you. We left the body in Queens, so the police aren't even going to trace it back to us. Like You are not ever going to get implicated on this. The cops are never going to come to you. It is all good. So when the police find Andre's body parts, they inform his wife that he was found squished and they found a leg. The wife immediately fingers Babette. She's like, yeah, the girl he left to meet, she called afterwards looking for him. It seems like she was trying to cover her tracks. If he's dead, she did it. Definitely her. So Babette had left the day after it happened. She had had a family trip planned for like a long time before that. So she that happened the night before. She took off the next day, I think she went to California, San Francisco, maybe? Somewhere in California. She took the clothes that she had worn the day that she went and met him and she got rid of them and she gave Katz a fake name. So she thought she might be in the clear. So it actually really didn't take that long. The cops tracked her down, they contacted her friend, and they told her friend, like, hey, we're looking for this girl, Babette, we can't find her, but we need you to let her know that she's wanted for questioning. Like, she needs to get here now. As soon as they approached the friend, Babette breaks down and vomits up every single piece of information that she knows. The only thing that she lies about is saying that she, she told the cops that she had agreed to help Joey Testa. Not Henry, because she actually liked Henry. She was friends with Henry, and she didn't want to see him get in trouble, but she wasn't willing to take the fall for this either. The cops brought her back to the station to start asking her additional questions, but she actually started forgetting stuff. So what did the cops decide to do? They hypnotize her so she can remember more clearly. She gives them the true story this time, telling them all about her refusal to do it and the threat that she had to do it, Henry telling her, you know, this is no longer a choice, you're doing it. Him promising not to hurt cats. Him promising up, down, left, and right, nothing was going to happen to him. He just wanted to talk to him. And him admitting that he killed cats. And she even threw in there that he told her that his body was in Queens and that they would never link it back to him. So they put Henry Borelli and Joseph Testa on trial for murder. The police come out and announce that there was a grisly, brutal murder of but they didn't really give any more information than that. After the arrest, they told the press that two or three additional men were being investigating for having taken part in the murder as well. They stood trial on January 5th, 1976. Babette testified about absolutely everything that she knew. She didn't implicate Chris or Anthony Center, so they didn't ever have any charges pressed on them, but these two did. She did fall apart, though, on cross-examination. Borelli's lawyer hammered this girl about a prior anxiety diagnosis, her past drug use, and the fact that the cops had to hypnotize her to get the confession that they wanted. Since there was no physical evidence tying either man to the murder and they had just destroyed Babette, who was like number one key witness, the two men were quickly acquitted for the murder. Now, typically, if you go on trial for something in the United States and you're found not guilty by a jury of your peers, that's it. They can't try you for it again. There's a law called Double Jeopardy which forbids prosecution from trying someone twice on the same crime. This doesn't work on a hung jury, the trial starts all over again, but when you are acquitted, they are not allowed to touch you again on that crime. You can walk out of the courtroom, go on to the front steps, and tell the news, yep, they found me not guilty, but I did it. I really did kill them. And there is not shit that the prosecution is supposed to be able to do about it. But we've already established that the government does not give a fuck about the constitutional protections that human beings in the United States have when it comes to mafia members. We've seen multiple times people go to jail for long stints of time for exercising their Fifth Amendment right not to testify. When Giuliani wrote the RICO laws, he wrote it in that you can be tried for a crime that you have been found not guilty for in the past, as long as they can prove that that crime was done in service of organized crime. In other words, you can go on trial for murder, get found not guilty, then 20 years later they can come and arrest you for that same frickin' murder, but use RICO this time, which is almost impossible to defend against. And as long as they say that you committed the crime as part of an organized criminal enterprise, you're on trial for it all over again. Several members of the crew went back on trial for this murder in 1984. Joseph Testa and Anthony Center were charged with his murder. As well as eleven other victims. So Joseph Testa, Anthony Senter wasn't charged the first time, but Joseph Testa was. So he was found not guilty of it, and then he went to jail in nineteen eighty four for having committed that crime. So they double jeopardied his ass and I hate Giuliani and I hate the American government and I hate every single thing that is just a blatant disregard of human beings' constitutional rights. Like now don't get me wrong. Do I think that they should have gotten away with it? No, but do I think that there's a constitution in place to protect Americans and it was blatantly disregarded on multiple occasions with this RICO law? Absolutely. Babette decided to come back and testify at this trial as well. I can't find if she ever joined the witness protection program, but I've gotta assume so. I don't know about you, but I would never ever testify like this, but if I did, you bet your ass. I would be in the program after that. Fuck that noise. But I wouldn't testify. I hate cops. Oh, I hate cops. I hate cops with every single little piece of me. I hate them. So, no. There's nothing you could do to get me on the record against anybody. Regardless, I don't care. In 1979, Chris went to Florida to set up a drug deal with Charles Padnick. Padnick was a Loan Shark customer and he had taken out a lot of loans from Roy DeMayo. DiMeo set Chris up to go meet with Padnik to set up a drug deal. Padnick was having a really hard time paying back his loans, so he went to DiMeo and he asked, like, listen, is there anything that I can do to get out from under this? Like I'm having a really hard time. I would really appreciate it if you could help me figure out how to make some extra money so I could pay you back. He mentioned that he knew some Cubans who had some serious connections with the Colombian cartels. So DiMeo hears cartel and he's like, oh, hell yes. Let's go. Let's go baby. Let's get this done. So he tells Padnick, yes, I got you. I can definitely help you make some extra money. So he tells Padnick, set up a meeting between Chris and your dude and let's get some business going and we'll pay you a finder's fee. So Padnick sets up a meeting in Florida between Chris and William Serrano the Cuban that Padnick was friends with. Chris goes to this meeting and introduces himself as Chris DeMeo. Serrano was actually a go-between, and he set up a deal with the Colombians, but he never told Chris what the source of the drug was. So Chris was operating under the assumption that it was William Serrano who had the drugs and was selling the drugs to him. They set up a trial run of a kilogram, and it just it goes off without a hitch. It's, it's just put in place to like see if they can trust everybody, feel each other out, and now they're setting up a larger scale relationship. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt the video, and I'm sorry about the background and the way that I look right now. I just have to interject because when I was editing the video, I realized that my camera had cut off and cut off a pretty substantial piece of this video, and unless I come in and kind of butt in and let you guys know what's going on, none of what I'm about to say is going to make any sense. So... Again, excuse the way I look, excuse the background, but this is only going to be a quick interlude. So Chris went to the meeting, he introduces himself as Chris DeMayo, and pretty much his thought process is, well, I'm going to kill this dude, so it doesn't matter if he knows who I am. He doesn't know that Serrano is actually the go-between in the deal that is being set up with the Colombians. He just thinks he's setting up a deal with Serrano, so he's not, like, weary to introduce himself or anything. So they do a trial run of a kilogram. Everything goes off without a hitch. And now they're setting up a large-scale relationship. They set up a deal to do 12 kilograms of cocaine for the Colombians to supply and for Chris and his crew to distribute in New York. They probably agreed on a purchase price of around $500,000, that would be about the value of the cocaine at the time. So a group from the Colombians flies down to New York to facilitate this gigantic deal that they're trying to set up. They fly in on March 17th, which is St. Patrick's Day, which is a huge earning day for any drug dealer in New York City. Padnik, Serrano, and Serrano's Colombian connections girlfriend, slash baby mama, and his cousin, slash his bodyguard, all come, so we've got three boys, one girl, a lot of connections with this Colombian supplier. The group gets to New York and within hours of touching down in New York, they are all shot and killed. The idea is that Chris and his crew wanted the product but they didn't want to pay about $500,000 so all four members, body parts, made their way to the Fountain Avenue dump pretty quickly and Chris showed up in the hospital with a bullet wound on his hand and on his head. So now he had already been shot before, by cats. Now he's shot again in the hand and in the head. This boy is a pincushion at this point. He just has holes all over himself. So most likely it was the cousin slash bodyguard that just like felt something was sus, pulled out a weapon, and got a shot or two off. And then obviously the DiMeo crew had a lot more people so they were able to overwhelm them. So the bodyguard really didn't have a shot, but he gave it a go. He, he tried. He tried to fight back. The Colombian cartel connection, El Negro, or the black one as he introduces himself as, El Negro doesn't hear from his girlfriend or his cousin that night, so now he starts panicking. He starts going wild. He starts calling Padnick's wife to try to get in touch with anybody from the crew that he had sent to New York but obviously his body parts are laying in a dump somewhere, so he can't really get to the phone right now. When she tells him that Padnick isn't there, El Negro asks to speak with Jamie Padnick, Padnick's son. So the mother is like, uh, no. Jamie's 20 years old, it's not like he's a kid, but he's sleeping right now, and she's absolutely not going to wake him up. Although Padnick's wife, Gladys, doesn't really know the extent of her husband and son's involvement in crime. She does sense that something is off with El Negro. She knows that there's some sort of business deal going on between her husband, her son, and El Negro. So she's like, nah, bro, I'm not waking him up. You go ahead and have a nice day. Not gonna happen. When Jamie wakes up the next day, his mom tells him about, like, these weird-ass calls that had been coming in from this super sketch dude. And a few hours later, Gladys leaves the house to go run some errands. When she got back, Jamie is gone. He decided to fly to New York to see if he could figure out what the hell is going on. Honestly, at this point, he's way more concerned that they had gotten caught, that there was some kind of big drug bust or something. He's looking in the newspapers to see if there had been a gigantic drug bust. He, his first thought is not that they're dead. When he got there and he knocked on Mayo's club doors to ask him what the hell is going on, He soon joined his father at the Fountain Avenue dump. El Negro called Serrano's brother to a meeting where, draped in shadows, he promised to take care of what had happened to the group. So he's like, listen, I got this, like, absolutely not going to stand, something's going to go down here. A huge problem presented itself, though. When Chris had introduced himself to Serrano, he had introduced himself as Chris Tomeo, son of a big shot mafia boss. He thought Serrano was the source of the cocaine, and he planned to kill him anyway, so he didn't worry about the fact that he knew who he was, but he didn't know that Serrano had gone back to El Negro and given him every detail about the meeting, the buyers, everything about the situation was related to El Negro. By now, all of El Negro's friends have told him, they're like, yo, dude, I hate to tell you this, but we've heard about this DiMeo kid, he's a psychopath, and all of your friends and family are dead. 100%. There's no way you're ever going to see any of them ever again. El Negro, as well as the Cubans and the Colombian drug cartel, they have a lot of business going on with the Mafia in other areas, especially with the Gambino family. El Negro pretty much lays it out there as, I want this handled right now or there's about to be a war. Full blown war, Colombian drug cartel versus American Mafia, let's see who wins or how much blood we can spill in the meantime. Try me motherfucker. So the go-between on these messages is Dominic Montiglio, Anthony Gaggi or Nino's nephew, the one that he's looking to pass the reins to. Dominic goes to El Negro and he's like, Aye right, dude, like actually the kid's name is Chris Rosenberg. What do you want so that we can keep the peace? What can we do to avoid a war? We don't want a war. El Negro says pretty much like, I'm not accepting anything except this dude dead. I want him dead. On top of that, he is not going to just take someone's word that he's dead. He wants it done in a way that's going to make the media, it's going to make the newspapers. Dominic actually really didn't like Chris. Chris was out-earning Dominic tenfold, and he had no problem bragging about it. And it was just one of those things like, I'm Nino's prodigy, you're Roy's, and we have this innate sense of competition. Even though you'll never be made, you're out-earning me is really starting to piss me the fuck off. So now, in order to stop a full-blown gang war in which we know Chris is going to die at the end, Chris has to go. Nino tells Roy that he has to get rid of Chris. But Chris is like a son to Roy. They do all of their scheming together. They do all of their business together. He's the one that he can go to and, like, rant about his day. He has all the murders that are carried out. They do it together. It's just, he's his right-hand man. He does not want to kill this kid. So he's, like, placating them, but he's putting them on hold. Like, I, yeah, I got it. I got it. He has to die. Okay, cool. Just wait. Like, it'll happen. But as he's placating them, time is going on, and day by day, things are getting hotter and hotter on the streets. Roy starts getting super paranoid because the Colombians start sending people to remind him that Chris has to die or they're gonna go to war. It had been weeks already, Chris still wasn't dead, and they're getting really fed up. They're like, all right, this has to happen, and if it doesn't, we are going to rain down hell fire on you motherfuckers. Roy knows this, but he's just trying to delay the inevitable, he doesn't want this to happen. But at the same time he's getting super paranoid, so he's constantly looking over his shoulder, he's convinced that the cartel is going to send men out to kill him, and he's just skitsy at this point. I'm going to turn it back over to the original video, thanks again for dealing with uh, my background, the way I look, I know I'm a whole mess. I hope this all makes more sense now that I was able to put this little blurb in there. One day, Roy is sitting in his house in Massapequa Park, that's on Long Island, and he's scared to leave because the cartel is going to come through and kill him if he leaves the house. He's just hanging out with Joseph Guglielmo, his cousin that has the apartment upstairs from the bar, and he's just like eating some lunch, just chilling. He's getting threatened pretty regularly by cartel enforcers at this point, so anybody with brown skin is out to get him in his mind. They're going to kill him. He hasn't even told Chris at this point that anything is going down. He's keeping Chris completely separated from it because if it does come down to him having to actually kill him, he doesn't want Chris to see it coming. So he's just keeping it completely separate from him. He looks outside the window and he sees a dude sitting in his car outside his house. He's brown, so they must have found him. So now Roy is like, yeah, screw this shit. This cartel really went and sent a man to my house, my home, where my family sleeps. They are dead. So he goes outside strapped with Joseph and they try to grab this kid out of the car. Dude sees them coming and he nopes the fuck out of there. He gets out. Roy's having none of it though, so him and Joseph, they're done and they get in the car And he's kind of like going crazy, he's like, they want to see my family dead, they sent someone where my kids sleep, like, no, we're going to kill this motherfucker. Him and Joseph hop into a car and they start chasing this dude down. The chase goes on for seven miles on Route 110 through Amityville and Farmingdale until Roy runs this kid off the block and damages his car to the point that he can't drive it anymore. At which time, they open fire and spray the hell out of this car and kill the kid that was driving. So now Roy drives off. He's feeling super proud of himself. Like, yeah, it was a really public killing. That's not great. But who could say a word to him about it? The cartel sends somebody to his house where his kids sleep. Turns out, the kid sitting outside of his house had just left his neighbor's house. He was 19-year-old Dominic Rigucci, who was just paying his way through school by selling vacuum cleaners. He sold them door to door, so he had just left his neighbor's door and was sitting in his car just kind of like looking through documents. He started running when he saw Roy coming out because Roy made it clear he was strapped, but he had absolutely no connection to the mafia, the crew, like any gang, cartel, nothing. He was just like a college student trying to pay his way through school. This was the absolute end of the line. Nino went to Roy and was like, yeah, dude, that's it squashed kibosh. This is ridiculous. You just killed a kid mad publicly and he was innocent. Like he had nothing to do with anything. We're not starting to stack bodies that don't need to be stacked. Chris has to die, period. Go do it now. Enough fucking around. We're not playing anymore. Get this done. So Roy grabs his family and brings them out of New York and puts them in a hotel out of New York away. On May 11th, 1979, Chris came to the clubhouse just you know, he has no idea that anybody's coming after him. He has no fear. He has no reason not to go to the clubhouse. Roy pulled out a gun and shot him, but he didn't die. He stumbled up onto one knee, and he's like, what the fuck? Like, you're my father. I give. I gave you my last name. Like, I tell people I'm Chris DiMaio. What are, what are you doing? And Roy is just kind of standing there, like, dumbfounded. He's like, I, "I. I don't know. He couldn't do anything. He couldn't make a move. Anthony Center saw this and he came up and shot Chris four more times, killing him. Now, they had to figure out a way to make this make the papers, which is kind of hard because a lot of people were getting killed in New York City at the time. Not every death makes the papers, especially when it's mafia related. Chris was known to be a member of the mafia. It was highly likely that it wouldn't make the papers, so they had to figure out a way to do something to make it make the media. They put him in his car and they put the car on a street near a park and then they drove by the car and lit it up with a machine gun. They knew that that was enough of a spectacle, you know, putting it near a park and people will, oh my god, that's where my kids are. What if they were there at 3 o'clock in the morning when probably somebody got killed? The cops did know that he wasn't killed in this car, but it did have its desired effect. It did make the newspapers. So crisis averted, no gang war. No, nothing they called it their internal bay of pigs i'm guessing because the cuban was involved and i went over the bay of pigs in one of my videos yeah i want to say carlos marcelo i went over the bay of pigs and what that is because that was actually really heavily mafia-involved, so if you want to know about the Bay of Pigs and what went into that, go ahead and go look at the Marcello video. Yeah, they, they called this incident where it almost came down to a Colombian or a, a Cuban cartel fight, or a Colombian cartel, someone someone's cartel. It almost came down to a gang war. It, it, they called that the, the Bay of Pigs roy would bring chris up at family events and barbecues and everything that they had for the next few years and he would just like be skulking somewhere in the corner just like sad he said he felt empty without him it didn't feel like the party was complete and honestly i get this i do i've lost a best friend i've lost a parent like trust me i understand that losing somebody that important to you creates He has every right to feel that way. But it's just kind of wild to me that he even has the capacity to feel that kind of loss from a death of his doing, and especially how often he doles it out. It's just wild to me. I mean, I know, I get it. It's very different to kill someone that you're enemies with and someone that you look at as a son. But it's just I don't know, it's just crazy. Even me, I mean, I don't get sad at I I don't really have a family, but if I go out and, you know, I I don't really sit around anymore and say, you know, oh I wish I wish my mom was here. I wish Billy was here. I don't do that, so um it's crazy to me that he did. And I don't even kill people. Now at this point, Roy is stupid rich stupid rich. He had some really, really successful schemes pay off, and they paid off huge. He had the drugs from the $500,000 deal that they didn't have to pay out because they killed the people. Before that, he had been put on the board of a credit union, and this was like a small little credit union in Brooklyn, but think about the amount of money that goes into any kind of banking institution. There's a lot. And while he was there, he laundered money that he had made illegally. And he got a bunch of his colleagues at the bank to do the same. So like they, he would go and say, okay, Joe Schmo is working at the bank. I'm gonna match you up with, let's say, Chris, and Chris is gonna go out. He's gonna commit all of his illegal activities, and then he's gonna bring the money to Joe Schmo, who works at the bank, and then Joe Schmo is gonna clean the money for him. And each person would do that. Like he, like each person at this credit union would get matched up with somebody in his crew and they'd make some money for laundering the money and you know it worked out for all parties involved while he was working on the board he took advantage of the reserve money and he increased his loan sharking business he used so much of the bank's money that he literally put the credit union under and the credit union ended up having to merge with another bank which was pretty much meant that the entire bank fell it folded because of him When the Fed started sniffing around because it was completely bizarre for a bank to just fold out of nowhere, he left the bank and nobody ever looked twice at him for causing this. While he's at this bank, he takes advantage of the reserve money and increases his loan sharking business. Using the bank's reserve is actually how he ended up getting enough money to go into funding legitimate businesses like the abortion clinic, the restaurants, the dentist offices. After he left the bank, he started getting into the peep show slash pornography business. A lot of people in the mafia were engaged in the porn industry. It's nothing new, you know, even if you watch like Sons of Anarchy, they were involved in the porn industry. it's a lot of mafia and gang activity in the pornography business. And you could see why, I mean It's a sketchy industry. The problem came from the type of porn that Roy was producing and distributing. He started making films that contained child pornography and bestiality. So, in other words, dogs, horses, all that nasty, crazy shit. Nino told him immediately that it was absolutely unacceptable But Roy pretty much argued, like, we need to compete in the market and we're not going to unless we make and sell this sick shit. Nino told him no and ordered him to immediately stop doing it, but obviously, you know, Roy is Roy and he kept doing what Roy does and he didn't stop. Nino really couldn't say much though because Roy was pretty much the only reason that Nino was living as well as he was living right now. Paul Castellano felt the same way. He hated the stuff that Roy was involved in. He completely hated Roy and everything that he did, everything he stood for. He just found this man vile. He hated him, but he made such an insane amount of money that like really what are you gonna do? Like what are you gonna say? There's nothing that you can do when you're in a criminal enterprise and this dude is making you a millionaire. Paul Castellano had a house that they called the White House. Because it looked like the White House on Toad Hill. And Roy was a huge reason for that. So, like, what are you, what are you gonna do, you know? I mean, I know what I would do. Especially, both Paul and Nino had kids. Like, how could you have children and be okay taking money from someone that's selling videos of children being fucking raped? Like, come on, bro. But money is money. And, I don't know. They... They didn't. They didn't kill him. He eventually set up a really lucrative stolen car ring where he would steal cars and then sell them overseas to Kuwait for a huge profit. It made it a lot easier to sell them overseas. People weren't looking for those particular cars and they didn't have to be as careful about the VIN numbers and the VIN plates and all of that stuff because it was going to Kuwait. Who's going to care there? When Roy started bitching that he wanted to become a MAID member, Paul squashed it immediately. He was absolutely not. No. There had been a pretty long-term lock on the books, and they weren't allowed to make anybody for a while, because a few people had been accused of selling memberships, so it was locked down for a really long time, and Carlo Gambino and the entire commission were the ones that made the decisions to do this. Everybody assured Roy that he would be made once Carlo Gambino died, and he's getting older, he's having heart problems, it's gonna come soon, so everyone's like, you know, just... Just wait until Carlo's gone, and then it'll get lighter, everything will be okay, like you'll become a made man, you just gotta wait for it. You gotta be patient. Eventually, Carlo Gambino did die of natural causes, and they put Paul Castellano in place as the boss of the Gambino family. So when he wanted to be made, he said, hey, I sat around, I waited, you told me to wait until Carlo Gambino died, Gambino's dead, I want to be made now. But now Paul is squashing it. Paul's like, eh, eh, no, 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 no. This, this man knew. No. <laughs> and Roy is arguing it for a while, you know? Like, I've done all this work. I've killed all these people. I do everything for you guys. I make all this money. I deserve to be made. But Paul is just like, Mm-mm. nope, no. And he kind of attributes it to, you know, Paul was more on the white collar crime side of things. And he kind of looked down on, like, the blue collar crime which is kind of ridiculous to me cuz like bro you're in the mafia like read the room what what you only respect white collar criminals but then again Paul also knows that he's selling kitty porn so like i totally respect Paul for not being okay with Roy so now Roy is bitching and bitching and bitching and bitching but then he decides like all right i got to figure something out like i've got to do something big to make Paul not have any choice but to make me. The deciding factor came down to a situation that I went into in super great detail in my Vincent Gigante video. So, it's a wild story. I'm going to go over the cliff notes version, but if you want to know more about this situation, go check out my Gigante video. But here I'll just go through like Roy's involvement in the situation. In the 1970s, the Italians and the Irish were at war because the Genovese family wanted to take control of the Jacob Javits Center build that was being built in Hell's Kitchen and the Irish wanted nothing to do with the Italians being involved. The Irish Mafia, or the Westies, they're completely blocking any access to this project by anybody of Italian descent. Like, absolutely no Italian involvement whatsoever. Mickey Spillane, the leader of the gang, is... Doing a pretty good job of holding them off. Even though the Italians could obviously take the entire Irish gang out within like a second, they didn't want to. It was like way too high profile. It's way too many people, way too much blood. They didn't want to go to war. They did everything they could to just set up a mutually beneficial relationship. There's plenty of money to be made, and instead of wrapping everybody up in a murder case, they could just wait until they could peacefully make an. An agreement. Spillane is a complex, weird dude. So he's paying tribute to the Italian Mafia for being able to exist and operate his criminal activities in New York City, so he knows enough to be scared of the Italians. He knows enough to pay homage to them, but then you put a multi-million dollar project on the line like the Javits Center and that's where he draws the line and digs his heels in. So he's weird. Spillane had a habit of kidnapping people and holding them for ransom, which was almost always paid because it was in the mafia and they couldn't be known to lose their people. Like, they had to make it clear, like, yeah, we don't want to be weak. You know, the whole we don't negotiate with terrorists thing, but the whole point of being in the mafia is to be protected, so. They always got paid. But because of this, the Italians are getting pretty freaking sick of this man real fast. Another problem that Spillane has is that another Irish mobster, James Coonan, has some serious beef with him. He's hated him, like, forever, because Spillane beat the shit out of Conan's father a while back. Conan's father was an accountant, and Spillane kidnapped him, pistol whipped him, and held him until ransom was paid. When Coonan came at Spillane and his friends with a machine gun... Spillane went back to Coonan's father and smacked the shit out of him. He pretty much told him, like, get your son in order, get this shit figured out, or I'll be back. And now, Coonan is pissed, but he can't do anything because he got locked up in relation to another murder kidnapping, and he's doing some time on that charge, so he can't really do anything about it at this time. Another Irish mobster who starts making a name for himself is Francis, or as he was known, Mickey Featherstone. Featherstone is the type of guy that just like does not give a fuck. If he got into a bar fight with someone, he would go outside with them and shoot them in the head in front of an entire crowd and not give a shit. He would just walk away, not caring. And he always got away with it. I don't know how you can kill someone in front of 20 people and still walk away out of a court a free man. But he had done it multiple times. When he borrowed Kunin's gun to do a crime once, Kunin sees Featherstone just like body a dude in front of a crowd and he's like, you know what? I need this boy on my team. He's, he's a beast. I like this kid. So he makes Featherstone his number two. Now DiMeo is trying to become a made member and it's ridiculous that he hasn't become one yet. By now he's up to like a body a week. He's just dropping people left and right. He's taking care of all the dirty work for the entire family, he's earning millions and millions of dollars, but Castellano still doesn't want him being made. DiMeo gets a tip that Castellano is really trying to get a foothold in Hell's Kitchen because he has business that he wants to do at the Javits Center as well. So DiMeo is like, I bet this is my ticket in, done. I'll get the family a foothold in Hell's Kitchen and then Castellano will have no choice but to make me a made man. He reaches out to his people on the west side and he's like, yo, I need to get in touch with somebody important, some important Irish dude over there, get me in touch. His people on the west side are like, if you want to get in touch with any important Irish dudes, you gotta go through Jimmy Coonan. So DiMeo does some digging and he finds out that Ruby Stein, a mobster who was connected to both the Genovese and Gambino families and had a large amount of loans out on the street, had recently been killed and dismembered. He finds out that Kunin and his crew are the ones that did it. What is supposed to have happened there is DeMeo was supposed to kill Kunin for killing a dude that was so tight with two mafia families. Instead of doing that, he looks at it and he's like, bruh, I like this kid. He killed that man for the simple fact that he wanted to relieve all of the Irish people that had money out with Stein. And him and his crew brutally took the body apart and disposed of it themselves. Usually, I'm the only one around here that can do that. So i this kid. It wasn't often that DiMeo saw a group after his own heart. So instead of reporting that he had killed Stein and having him killed or killing him himself, he goes to Kunin and he's like, listen, this is how it's going to be. I know that you killed Stein, but I'm not going to rat you out and I'm not going to kill you and I'm not going to have you killed. You are going to work with me. So Kunin is kind of like hesitant because he really doesn't care too much about the risk that he took on by killing Stein. He's not really scared. He also doesn't really have too much interest in joining DeMeo because he doesn't know him, you know? He doesn't, DeMeo doesn't have a huge name on the street right now. When DeMeo called him one night and told him, like, happy birthday, I took care of a problem you've been having a while, and he found out that DeMeo had killed Spillane, something that Kunin had been trying to do his entire life, Kunin fell right in line with DeMeo. At the end of the day, DeMeo was going to kill Spillane for the fight over the Javits Center anyway. But this little scheme that he did, that he acted like he did it as a favor for him, worked. It got Kunin on his side. And Kunin started to, like, pretty much idolize DeMeo. Ruby Stein's torso was found, and all eyes turned on Kunin. Everybody was super pissed. Stein was a close associate with the Mafia. He was really close to a lot of really important people, and people wanted answers. DeMeo, at this point, he's still set on getting his button. And he sets up a meeting between Castellano and Kunin. When Kunin gets to the meeting, DeMeo pretty much tells him, like, shut your mouth, deny any involvement whatsoever with Stein, and you'll be fine, it'll be, it'll be fine, don't worry about it. So Kunin does just that, he's like, nope, not me, I had nothing to do with it. By the end of that meeting, Castellano had kind of reprimanded Kunin, he's like, I know you did Stein. I know you did. You're reckless and you're dumb, and I should smack the shit out of you. Kunin sticks to his story, though, and it works. Castellano knows he did it, but he's like, yeah, whatever. I can't prove it, so. And he does the whole, like, well, if you did do it, you're an idiot. But sure, I believe you. Wink, wink. I'm not a good winker. Don't make fun of me. I don't want to talk about the fact that I can't wink, okay? I, I can't. <laughs> I'm spastic, okay? Leave me alone. I also can't whistle, so whatever. By the end of the meeting, the Westies have been established as an official associate to the Mafia. They were put in place to step into a role that had been open since Murder, Inc. fell when the Jewish mafia members started telling on each other and convincing their friends to rat. And, you know, none of the Italians that were in Murder, Inc. went down, but the role had been open. There had been nobody to carry out the professional hits that the families needed. So the Westies stepped into that role. So the deal comes out that the Westies are now the murder ink of the Gambinos, and they would pay 10% of their income to Castellano. And anybody that needed to be killed, Castellano would hire them to do it. And he would set them up with pretty lucrative union jobs and stuff like that. So he made them a lot of money. They did their dirty work, so it worked out. And it also worked out for Tameo, because as much as Castellano had done everything in his power to avoid it, Roy had to be made now. He kicked up thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars a week to Castellano. He killed every person Castellano had ever wanted killed. And now he got the Westies, who had been notorious for causing problems and resisting an alliance with the Italians, on board. As partners. In mid-1977, DeMeo was given his button and became a made member of the Gambino family. The Westies went on to beat several murder cases that the DA had them on, dead to rights. They each did some prison time, but there was a period of time that the Irish Mafia was contemplating killing Coonan because of how embedded he had become with the Italians. But nobody had the balls to step to him, so nobody ever tried to kill him. DeMeo was set up as the go-between man for the Westies and the Gambinos, so he was, you know, that was his little project. After the murder of a 19-year-old innocent kid, DeMeo was ordered to do two things, never kill another person without getting permission from both Nino and Castellano, and to cease and desist all drug dealing that he was doing now or had ever done, it stopped right now. We all know the song and dance that goes into that though. DiMeo agreed, but he continued dealing cocaine, weed, and narcotic pills. He also continued killing people whenever he wanted, and this is around the time that he killed Quinn and Cherie. Castellano actually took the news of that one pretty well. He calmly told Nino to make sure that people aren't going that don't have to go but everybody was expecting Castellano to explode on that one. By this time, Castellano was very used to and very happy with the money coming from DiMeo's crew. The FBI dubbed their auto theft ring, which actually had become the largest in New York City history, as the Empire Boulevard operation. Stolen cars were being exported to Kuwait and Puerto Rico through Newark, New Jersey ports. The crew only consisted of five members, but each of them were taking home about $30,000 a week, which means that the amount that was being kicked up to Castellano was more than enough to make him overlook the little things like you know, killing a, a girl because she was dating a dude. It's fine. Castellano had gotten behind Roy a hundred percent by this time. When James Epolito, Jr. and Sr., two made men in the Gambino family, approached Castellano and pretty much told him that DeMeo and Nino were dealing drugs, which was an immediate death penalty, Castellano didn't really have to think about it too much. Nino was pretty much Castellano's right-hand man by this point, and DeMeo had started to stack bodies over the three-digit mark in service of Castellano. James Eppolino Sr. and Jr. are obviously father and son. Father Eppolito has a brother, Louis Eppolino, who is both a prior NYPD detective and a made man in the Gambino family for Castellano. Louis's father, Ralph, James Sr.'s brother, is also a made member. So this is a really hairy situation for Castellano. On one side, he's got a dude that does all his killing for him, makes him a ton of money, is the main contact with the Westies, who are bringing in union jobs and killing people they need to get rid of and letting them get in on the Javits Center. Like, they're bringing, he's bringing millions in. And then on the other hand, you have an entire family full of made men that are pretty valuable themselves. One's a former detective, and he has connections at the police department. They earn. Not as much as Roy earns, but they do earn. And there's a bunch of them, and those people all have friends. At the end of the day, though, Castellano did side with Nino and Roy. He told Nino he could do as he wished. He didn't want to hear about it, but, you know, take the whole crew out if you want. I don't really care. Nino and Roy went together to kill James Jr. and Sr. on October 1st, 1979. They had them in the car, and the father got spooked. And he just didn't like the situation. He didn't like the vibes. So he told James Jr. to pull over the car so that he could pee. James bitched and he was like, no, dad, just wait a minute. We'll be there soon. They were heading to the Gemini Lounge together. Father flips out, tells him, listen to your father, pull over the car. And now by this point, Tomeo and Nino are like, all right, it's on. They they know. They know something's going on. They know something's fishy. So we got to do something now. The only problem is they were on a pretty main road with a lot of witnesses, and that's why the father had done that. He was like, you know, they're not going to do that on a busy main street like this. But clearly he didn't know DeMeo, so, you know, DeMeo, I gotta do what I gotta do. And he shot and killed both James Sr. and Jr. in the car. Because it was such a public spot, this dude saw the whole thing go down. This kid had, like, recently had a dream that he was Superman and he saved the city of New York with his crime-stopping abilities. So even though he was a criminal himself who carried a loaded weapon, he decided to do something about it. He also thought that it was a girl that had been killed. He didn't realize that it was a dude. He flagged down a taxi and asked the taxi driver to call the cops. He had no idea that the taxi driver was actually an off-duty NYPD officer. The cop went after Nino and Roy. So Roy splits because Roy is just um, noping the fuck out of here. But the cop was able to catch Nino since he moved pretty slowly, he's older. He shot Nino in the neck after Nino began opening fire on him. Nino was charged with murder for the killing of James Jr. and Sr. and the attempted murder of the police officer. So now, they have Nino pretty much red-handed. So what Roy does is he takes the gun that they used to shoot Eppolito with and he shot a bullet into a barrel of water. He got the bullet, and he gave the bullet to Nino. Nino had refused to have the bullet removed by doctors, and instead the doctor said that the bullet would come out on its own. When it did, he got rid of the real bullet, and he gave the cops the bullet that Roy had given to him. He claimed that he was also shot by the dude that killed James Jr. and Sr., and him having a firefight with the cop who actually didn't identify himself as a cop was just wrong place, wrong time. The fight wouldn't really hold up in court since the prosecution actually had images of the bullet when it was still in Nino's neck, and it showed a very different pattern. The bullet itself was very different because it was shot into two different things. One bullet was shot into a body, one was shot into water, so they look very different. And they have the one that was in his neck on the images, and you can clearly see, like, it's not the same bullet. Thank God for Nino, though, he had a friend who's daughter was on the jury. The jury had been sequestered because of mafia activity, but they were allowed to meet their family and friends for Valentine's Day. The girl's dad came to Valentine's Day and he instructed her to make sure that the jury was hung and that Nino didn't go to jail forever. So she went on and did just that. She would not agree with the rest of the jury that he was guilty for this crime. They all immediately said guilty and she was the only one that was like, no, not guilty. She would just say, like, I have a feeling he didn't do it. I I don't feel like he did it. Since the jury was tired of sitting around and fighting over it, and they didn't want to come out with a hung jury, they met in the middle. They agreed to find him not guilty for murder, but guilty for assault, for the fight that he had had with the cop. He was given 5 to 15 years, which is much less than the three life sentences he probably would have gotten without that girl. Plus, I think attempted murder of a cop is a capital offense. He could have gotten death if it was legal in New York at the time. The death penalty has been instated, abolished, and reinstated so many times in New York history. It was abolished in 1860 and it was reinstated in 1861. It was severely limited in 1967 and in 1972 all death penalty statutes in the country were invalidated. In 1973, a New York state law was written mandating a death sentence for anybody who was found guilty of murder of a police officer, a correctional officer, or a prisoner serving a life sentence. In 1977, the courts got rid of the death penalty for the police or correctional officer murder, and then in 1984, they got rid of the inmate one. So, for a while there, it was legal. You don't get the death penalty. It's not legal, but you don't get the death penalty for killing a cop, but you do get one for killing a murderer. When they got rid of the one for the inmate, that abolished the death penalty altogether in New York. George Pataki reinstated the death penalty in New York in 1995 but he instated it by means of lethal injection and it was finally ruled unconstitutional in 2004. In 2007, the final death sentence was reduced to life And that left no remaining prisoners on death row. All execution equipment has been removed from any and all state facilities in the state of New York in 2008. The last death sentence in New York took place in 1963 when Eddie Lee Mays was electrocuted at Sing Sing Prison. Mays was a 34-year-old man who, with two accomplices, held up the Friendly Tavern in East Harlem. When he told everybody to give him their money, jewelry, all that kind of stuff, there was a woman that was too slow to comply, and May shot her in the forehead. Mays' lawyers fought to lower his charges to second-degree murder, and the prosecution agreed they would, and that would spare his life, he would just get life in prison, but Mays rejected it. He told them that he would rather be executed than spend the rest of his life in prison. The prosecution told the jury that he was part of a gang that admitted to pulling off 52 robberies in six weeks, and it took 90 minutes for the jury to find him guilty of first-degree murder. His two co-defendants, 34-year-old David Johnson and 30-year-old Jose Sanchez Fernandez, got life sentences in 1962. Johnson was paroled in 1976 and Sanchez Fernandez was paroled in 1977. So they really didn't even do their entire life. They got out pretty quickly. Mays was executed in the electric chair on August 15th, 1963 in Ossining, New York at Sing Sing Prison. So that's kind of like a slap in the face like yeah, they did a while, you know, they did almost 20 years each, but they got out. You know, one of them died, I think, like a year after he got out of prison of like cancer or something. But, or no, 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 he didn't die of cancer. He died because he stuck up a gas station and the the gas station attendant in Texas shot him and killed him. But yeah, he took the electric chair and then he, he probably could have gotten paroled. So the whole point of that is Nino could have been sentenced to death in New York State in 1979. It was legal, but it's also very unlikely that he would have been. Even though Nino got off fairly late with a 5 to 15 year sentence, DeMeo still went and killed the witness, Patrick Penny, who tipped off the cop to the shooting and identified Nino as the shooter. Henry Borelli and Richard DiNomi, Frederick DiNomi's brother, were at the Empire Street operation one day when the police raided the place. They were arrested for their role in the operation. That was their main operation, so it was making millions of dollars. But there wasn't enough evidence to arrest Tamayo, Nino, or anybody else for having any part in it, so there was a little bit of a silver lining for them. Fido Arena and Joseph Lee also worked out of there, but they weren't caught. The dude on the other end of the Empire Boulevard operation in Kuwait was Khalid Dawood. Daoud was starting to get antsy knowing that all of these cars were stolen. He wanted to go into legitimate business and sell actual used cars that were bought legit. He thought the fact that these cars were stolen were having a serious detrimental outcome on his business. And one day, he suggested to them that he might just think about calling the cops. Obviously we all know what's going to happen now, I mean come on. Borelli and Danomi were sent to kill him. but. The plan, they didn't plan it out very well, and they weren't able to actually carry out the hit. Dimeo was informed that Dawood had actually made the call to the cops and was officially a witness against the crew. And he had given them a decent amount of information about the crew. DeMeo took Vino Arena and the rest of the crew when he lured out Daoud, as well as Ronald Falcaro, another legitimate car dealer in the Canarsie area, and killed them. They were disposed of using the Gemini method. DeMeo gave Vito a raise and started to invite him into the fold of the crew. He started getting invited to barbecues. He dressed as Santa Claus to give the crew's kids presents at a Christmas party in 1979, so he was getting pretty close. And he was the one that was sent to kill Patrick Penny, the witness to the Eppolito murders. Danomi called up Vito and pulled one of those, would you help me hide a body, things on him. He and the rest of the Gemini crew had killed two men. They drove the victim's car, with both victims in the trunk, to the cemetery to be discovered by authorities. Vito started keeping his distance from the crew after that. He was scared of the crew because the crew made it pretty clear that they didn't like him because of his homosexuality and he was pretty open about it. And he was scared that they would kill him one night. just for amusement. By the end of 1980, he had stopped going to the club at all. He and his partner Joseph Lee hid out in Suffolk County just in case the crew was on the hunt for them. They started pulling off armed robberies and on June 28, 1981, they were arrested in Brooklyn. When Arena was arrested, he immediately told police that he had actually been the anonymous tipster who called himself Harry when he called in that informed the cops about DiMeo's involvement in the murder of Daud and Falcaro. Now, right away, as soon as he got arrested, he threw himself to the feet of these cops. He wanted to become a witness, he wanted to get time off his sentence, you know, the works. He agreed to work with both the FBI and the NYPD. Now, the FBI and the NYPD are pretty notorious about not working well with each other, you know, stepping on each other's toes, this is my investigation, they don't, they don't do well together. Since they hadn't communicated well, there was some kind of mix-up, and regardless of the detrimental information that he could provide, he was brought to court, given bail, and was in the wind again. When the cops served Emeo with a subpoena to appear in front of a grand jury for the Empire Boulevard operation, they told him that Arena was talking. They were trying to get him to slip up and like say or do something stupid, but it definitely backfired in their face. And now, the police weren't the only ones looking for Arena. The Gemini crew was as well. On June 4th, 1982, an NYPD officer was with his family eating at a Chinese restaurant. He noticed Arena and Lee walk into the restaurant for food. He slipped away from his family, called for backup, and both of them were arrested and agreed to start cooperating again. Vito Arena was the inspiration for the character of Vito in The Sopranos, the one that turns out to be gay and got killed for it. Vito ended up testifying at multiple trials and, together with Dominic Montiglio, put a lot of people from this crew in jail. So now that that drama had passed, the Empire Boulevard operation continued to grow. So now DeMeo doesn't want any further investigation from the FBI, and his idea is that it would be the right thing to do to get Borelli and Zenomi to plead guilty to the charges to stop the law enforcement from continuing to look at the rest of his operations. DeMeo wasn't very smart for that one, though. He That wasn't the greatest move he made. The FBI is obviously going to continue investigating the operation, especially given the gigantic number of people who had gone missing or turned up killed who had been linked to DeMeo himself, the crew, or having been seen last at the Gemini Lounge. While this shit show is going on at the Gemini, Angelo Ruggiero is talking about Paul being the boss of the family. I went into this investigation a lot in my video about John Gotti, but the Cliff Notes version is Angelo Ruggiero had a brother, Salvatore Ruggiero, who was flying a plane with his wife when it crashed in Savannah, Georgia, at Tybee Beach. Both of them were killed instantly, but the plane was carrying a shit-ton of drugs. So that made the FBI investigate Angelo Ruggiero, because Angelo Ruggiero was so close with his brother, so they knew, you know, there's something going on here. and. I guarantee you Angelo Ruggiero is going to continue doing this operation even after his brother died. They placed the bug in his home in Cedarhurst, Long Island, when they heard a conversation between Ruggiero and John Gotti's brother talking about Castellano. The two were having a discussion about how Castellano had put out a hit on Zemeo, but he couldn't find anybody to actually kill him. He had approached John Gotti, who had a pretty serious reputation for killing anybody he needed to, but Gotti turned him down. Gotti said that Tameo had an army of killers around him, and while John had only killed about 10 people or less, Tameo was over 37, and that's just what Ruggiero was aware of. Dimeo had bragged in private to his friends that he had surpassed 100 a while ago. Castellano continued to look for somebody to carry out the hit, but he really couldn't find anybody. Eventually, he approached Frank Tachica with it. DiCicco took the job, but he also couldn't get a hold of DiMeo. He tried for a long time to get it done, but he could not for the life of him get his hands on this dude. And obviously, the FBI always lets people know when there's a head out on their life, if they pick it up on a wire. So the FBI did go to DiMeo and tell him, like, hey, you know, we did hear on a wire that Paul Castellano has a contract out on your life. So watch your back. So now he's being extra cautious. Eventually, after a while of trying and failing to assassinate DeMeo, DeChico ends up going to DeMeo's own men to do the job. On January 10th, 1983, DeMeo went to a meeting at Patty Testa's house for the crew. DeMeo had a habit of making a big deal about everybody in the house's birthday. They always got a huge party, a cake, you know, everyone was made to feel special. His daughter, Dion was having a birthday party that night, so Tameo told the family that he would be home early. When he still hadn't gotten home by the time the party started, his son, Albert, started getting really worried. And then when he hadn't arrived by the time the cake was cut, he was convinced he was dead. He started searching the house and found that Roy had left his wallet, his watch, his ring, his key, everything in the room. Mafia guys do that sometimes when they know that they're going to get killed. They don't want the people that are going to kill them to get a hold of these items that they want their family to have, so they'll leave their important items behind so that their family can have these things in case they get killed. The business owner of the Varuna Boat Club in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, called the cops eight days later to report a car that had been sitting there for a while. The police came, checked it out, and since it wasn't stolen, they were like, you know, whatever, we're not, just leave it. They were convinced that somebody was going to come pick it up you know they left it there or something they they just weren't worried about it it's brooklyn like you know the least of their worries is a abandoned car two days later when the car was still sitting there the business owner called again and he's like yo this car is still here like do something the cops went again and one of them stood on the back fender of the car and like hopped on the car to see if there was anything in the trunk. And they said that there wasn't. They had the car towed to a nearby police tow lot. When they ran the plates, they discovered that it was Roy DeMeo's car. And they had been following Roy DeMeo, obviously to follow his progress in the Empire Boulevard operation. When they opened the trunk, they found Roy inside. His body was frozen to the spare tire underneath him and there was like puddles of blood everywhere that were frozen. The freezing weather had delayed decomposition, which is why the body hadn't started to smell, which would obviously be what alerts people to a dead body there. There was an ornate chandelier that Roy had taken from his home to get repaired and he had left it in his car because he was bringing it to get fixed. But it was draped over him like a blanket. I think it's really funny that, you know, the cops, they got on the back fender and started hopping up and down, but they didn't feel a dead body. And Dimeo was not a skinny dude. Dimeo was a very chunky dude. So there was a body, an ornate chandelier, and a spare tire in the trunk. And they're like, nope, it's good. Go ahead, just tow it. Like, real great cop work, bro. He had been shot multiple times in the head and once in the hand. The assumption is that, you know, he put his hand up like this and they shot through the hand and it went into his head and, you know, he got shot a bunch of times. When the cops talk about what they think happened, they believe that the situation was similar to the way that Chris had died. They think that Nina was actually the one that shot him, and Testa and Center each put a bullet behind each one of his ears, pretty much like a symbolic gesture to show that they understood why DeMeo had to be killed. His son Albert wrote a book called For the Sins of My Father, And he also agrees that Dimea was killed by his own crew. In 1984, all the dudes from that crew that were free and alive were indicted. Nino Gaggi and Paul Castellano were also named in this indictment, which was a 78-count charge of auto theft, racketeering, and drug trafficking. Paul Castellano was indicted for ordering the murder of DiMeo, as well as a host of other crimes in the Mafia Commission's trial. Castellano was killed on December 15, 1985, by John Gotti, who then took his position as the boss of the Gambino family. A lot of people—most people—think it's really funny that Castellano ordered the death of DiMeo. The FBI indicated that there was no way in hell. With the amount of bodies that DeMeo had on him, that they would have offered DeMeo a plea bargain. And that's the reason that Castellano had DeMeo killed. He thought that DeMeo was going to cooperate now that he was indicted on the Empire Boulevard case. DeMayo was the only thing that was keeping Castellano alive. Scotty loved to say that it was because of Anielo de la Croce dying and, you know, Castellano not going to de la Croce's funeral. And I'm sure that did have a little part of it. I'm sure that thing definitely had a piece of it. But I would say it's probably 80% DeMeo gone and 20% de la Croce gone. Nobody would have touched Paul Castellano while DeMeo was around to protect him. But as soon as DeMeo was gone... Castellano is fair game and he was killed and nobody did anything about it because DeMeo was gone. So Castellano pretty much ordered his own friggin' death. Nino became the main defendant in the trial after Castellano died, but he died shortly after due to natural causes. Henry Borelli was found guilty of two counts of murder for the two car dealers. He got life in prison. Anthony Center and Joseph Testa were found guilty in June of 1989 of murdering Dawood and the other car dealer. They also got life. Because they had pled guilty to the charges before, it was really easy to wrap them up into the Rico charges. Even though they had previously been found not guilty for the murder of Andre Katz, because Rico throws away constitutional rights, they were retried and found re-guilty of that again. They both got life sentences for murder with an additional 20 years for racketeering. Richard DiNomi was killed by the crew after Vito Arena flipped because they were scared that, you know, your partner flips, we don't want you to flip, so they killed him. After he was killed, Frederick Dinomi became a witness and he later committed suicide. Vito Arena was killed during an armed robbery in Texas while holding up a gas station. So when I said before that that dude had died of natural causes, he really did die of natural causes. Their old club hangout, the Gemini Lounge, became, of all things, a church. DeMeo's son, Albert, went on to become a stockbroker. When his father had first died, he was bent on avenging him. While he was looking into that and trying to avenge him, he was run off the road and beaten to a bloody pulp on Sunrise Highway by members of the crew. So he just kind of like took the L and kept on moving. For a kid who claims to have been carrying a 25 with him every day to class in high school, designated as a bodyguard for both of his sisters, and picked up outside of his high school to go collect loan sharking debts at 13 years old, it's pretty impressive that he made it out. When Murder Machine was released, he had a nervous breakdown, and he was diagnosed with PTSD. He had bleeding ulcers and went out of his mind for a while, but he went to therapy, and he claims to be doing a lot better now. Roy Demeo's wife, Gladys, died of cancer on September 26, 2002. There was a whole shit ton of murders that went on that I didn't talk about. I only covered like 10, and that is the tip of the iceberg. There was so many other ones. This group killed for revenge, they killed to keep people silent, they killed innocent people on accident, and they murdered for hire. Their body counts are so astronomical. It's insane. When they were trying the surviving members, the prosecutors came out and said that the Roy DeMeo crew was the most violent crew ever prosecuted in federal court. Legit, there is not one human being in this entire story that deserved to breathe a sip of air. Like, the world is so much better off without them. Every single one of these guys are just scum. What they did to their victims, a lot of them not even mafia-related, is so reprehensible that... You have to hope that there is some sort of judgment day after you die, because if they don't have to answer for the torture that they doled out, that's just not fair. All right, that is all I have for this horrible waste of a human life, Roy Zemeo. If you've made it this far, thanks so much for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed the video. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, comment, do all the things, and I'll see you next week. Bye!